Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. But let me begin with this. What are the qualities or the characteristics of greatness in a person? Just rhetorical question. What are the characteristics of greatness in a person? Let me just, not intended to be an exhaustive list, but let me just list some things that I think would be kind of across-the-board common characteristics that would be possibly some of the key characteristics of what we would consider as greatness. First of all, one who is great is someone that endures. Someone that endures. A great life is a life that stands the test of time, has a lasting quality to it. Secondly, a great life is a unique life. A life that is not just a cookie-cutter life, but really is a life that charts a new course. Kind of goes where no one has gone before. A great life is a life that leaves a legacy. You know, greatness is not, though contrary to what message we might get through the media, greatness is not based upon what you accumulate. Greatness is based upon what you leave when you go. Legacy. A life that is great is a life that overcomes. Great people do that. Great people overcome. They rise above the problems. They fight through the pain. When the odds are stacked against them, they do not get discouraged and give up. It actually inspires them to step up to a new level is greatness. And then... A truly great life is a life that changes the world. Changes the world. Now, if you've glanced at the text that we're going to be looking at today, you probably see where I'm going with this. Jesus Christ is the very pinnacle of the list of greatness. In fact, compared to the quality of greatness in the person of Jesus Christ, nobody else is on the list, period. Think about those few qualities of greatness that I just listed. Is Jesus Christ's life a life that endures? His life is eternal. That's pretty enduring. Without beginning or end of days. How about His uniqueness? Think about the uniqueness of the life of Jesus Christ. He lived the most unique life of human history. He was the king of creation that was born in a stable. He was the provider of all being fed as an infant. He was the one who holds the world in his hands, being held in the hands of a teenage mother. He was the owner of all, and a peasant Jewish carpenter. He was the world power growing up under the subjugation to Rome. And he was the author of life dying on a cross. That's a unique life. 
How about his legacy? His legacy. Well, we're meeting here today because of him. That's just the fact. In fact, all across the globe today, there's been a gathering of peoples in the millions upon millions that have come to houses of worship to worship him. And we are bringing up the crescendo of that wave of worship as it's moved across the time zones. How about an overcoming life? Jesus Christ fit that bill? There are a few things that he overcame. He overcame obscurity. He overcame jealousy. He overcame misunderstanding. He overcame hatred. He overcame betrayal. He overcame false religion and the forces of nature and government. He overcame temptation and demons, the flesh, the devil, sin, death, and hell. He's an overcomer. And what about world changer? Really, that does not even need to be said. He has been the man of history since the day he stepped on the planet. I want to talk to you today about the person of Jesus Christ, and I want to take what we look at regarding his life from Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. Let me just read that passage in its entirety, and then we'll just begin to work our way through the statements, at least some of the statements made about Jesus and his greatness that Paul wrote to the church of Colossae. <clears throat> he begins in verse 15 and he says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might, have, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So let's see how many of those statements we can get to beginning in verse 15 that describe the greatness, the preeminence of the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul begins by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You and I are created in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Radical difference. We were created in His likeness. Jesus isn't like Him. He is Him. Jesus. Think about Jesus being the image of the invisible God. Jesus reveals God. Jesus portrays God. Jesus' life actually defines who God is. 
Yeah, he's the image of the invisible God. I just coming right out of the chute here with this first statement. I'm just struck at the frailty of words with which to try to explain and describe not only the frailty of human words, but my own personal frailty and inability to adequately describe to you the greatness of Jesus Christ. I pray that the Spirit of God would bring revelation to you beyond what I am saying. But let me just talk about a few of the aspects of the greatness of his revelation of God, him being the image of God. First of all, if you want to hear from God, you need to listen to Jesus. That's one way that he's the image of the invisible God. You want to hear from God? Listen to Jesus. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Listen to Jesus. Here is what took place when he walked the shores of Palestine. He taught, and those around him said, no man has ever taught like this man has taught. No man has ever spoken as this man has spoken. He took great profound spiritual truths, immense spiritual truths, and he put them in language that a child could grasp and understand. How could he do that? Because he is the image, the perfect revelation of God. Secondly, if you want to see life clearly, try to look through the eyes of Jesus. You want to see life clearly, try to look through the eyes of Jesus. Look through the eyes of the one who saw things not as they were, but as they were going to be. How different is that than us? Do you know that Jesus did that? He looked, let's just keep it in the sphere of people. He looked at people not as they were, but as he was going to make them. In fact, He didn't just see what He was going to make them. He related to them based upon who they were going to become. I'm so glad that's the way He operates. He looked at Saul the murderer in the midst of his murderous campaign and He said, Of him. He's the one that I am going to make my messenger. He said that about the murderer, about enemy number one. Here's the man that I am going to make my messenger. The ones that he is going to seize and take to prison, I'm going to use him to take the good news of me to them. Jesus saw things not as they were, but as they were going to be. He looked at Simon. Simon, the one intimidated by the crowd, the one who waffled in the 
midst of pressure. And he looked not at Simon, at who he was, but he looked at him and said, you're Peter. You're Peter. You're the rock. That's what that name means. You're the rock. He looked at the blind beggar sitting outside the temple gate. And the disciples looked at that beggar and they said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, they looked at that blind beggar and they saw the guilt of sin and the judgment of God. You know what Jesus saw? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. You want to know why this man is here and has been blind? He is here so that the power and glory of God can be displayed. What a radically different perspective. He didn't see the situation as it was. He saw the situation as it was going to be. And then he healed the man and displayed the glory of God. Here's a third way that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God, look at Jesus. You actually want to see God, look at Jesus. Jesus reveals the knowledge of God. At the very first dark day of history, remember the first dark day of history in the garden? Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve sinned, perfect world, utopia, sin entered, destruction, death. At that very moment, God made a promise. He said, I'm going to send a seed. And that seed's going to come from a woman. He's going to be a man. He's going to defeat the serpent. He's going to defeat Satan and his work. And then several thousand years later, Jesus showed up on the scene as the seed, the man. And he did exactly what God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 said he would do. He defeated the serpent, Satan. And so what that shows us is that Jesus Christ in his life proves that God has all knowledge. He knew it from before the beginning. That's why scripture says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Because God knew all about what was going to take place. You look at the life of Jesus, and what you see is you see the knowledge of God. Secondly, you look at the life of Jesus, and Jesus reveals as the image of God, he reveals the power of God. Cleanse the leper by saying, be clean. Commanded life-threatening storms to come to an immediate peace. And they obeyed. He astounded the disciples when he did that. And they said, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were awestruck by his power. By the power of his voice, he shattered the stillness and the death of Lazarus' tomb and brought life to it. Jesus is the image of God because he reveals the power of God. And then number four, you want to know God's heart. 
Want to know God's heart? Study Christ's heart. Study Christ's heart. What causes God to weep? Listen to Jesus and you'll find out. Because he looked out over the lost people and he wept over their alienation from God, over the fact that they were separated and alienated from their creator. And it caused him to weep. You want to know what breaks the heart of God? That breaks the heart of God. Because Jesus is God. What makes God angry? Look at the life of Jesus and you'll find out. As he enters into the temple, what is to be the house of prayer where people are to come so that they can meet with God and they're in the temple. The tables of the money changers are set up and people are making a flagrant profit out of the grace and the presence of God. And it made him angry. You want to know what brings great joy to God? Look to Jesus. Listen to him tell the story of a father with a wayward son who took his share of the inheritance, squandered it in riotous living, and there the father is standing at the gate, scanning the horizon for his lost son. And when he sees the son come to his senses, we find out what makes God's heart leap with joy. Because the father in Jesus' story laid his robes of dignity aside, kicked up the dust as he sprinted his way to his wayward son to fold him in his arms of grace. That's what makes the father leap with joy. It's a repentant sinner returning. You see, Jesus is the image of God, meaning he is the perfect revelation of the father. Paul goes on to say in the second half of verse 15 that he is the firstborn of all creation. Term firstborn here doesn't refer to time. It refers to place and status. Place and status. Here's what it points to. It points to Jesus as the Christ, the eternal pre-existent God, the preeminent being in the universe. So verse 15, it's who he is. Now Paul's going to start talking about what he's done. Verse 16, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Focusing on the two words for by him. 
by him. Let me just kind of give you three realms of time here. Talk to you about Jesus in the beginning. It says right here that by Jesus all things were created. Jesus Christ is the great cause. He is, period, the great cause. You know, the Christian faith is not a faith that is illogical. It is the one logical conclusion when you consider the facts because we know logically that with every effect, there must be a sufficient cause. That principle's pretty simple, right? With every effect, there must be a sufficient cause to bring about that effect. And what Paul is saying here is the effect of the universe, guess what the cause is? Jesus Christ. For by Him, all things were created. That's logical. But in the secular realm, we don't have consistent logic. Here's what is done. They tell the story of a beautiful lady kissing a frog and the frog becomes a a prince and we call it a fairy tale. And then we say the frog after 400 million years became a man. Is that consistent? They call that science. The first fairy tale, the second science. With every effect There must be a sufficient cause. Jesus is the great cause, for by Him all things were created. Talk about Jesus in the end. We talked about Jesus in the beginning for a second. Let's talk about Jesus in the end, Colossians 1.16b. All things were created by Him and for Him. Focus on the words for Him. Not only did all creation get its start in Him, but all creation was created with Him as its purpose. Him as its end, its goal. In fact, this universe and you and I, all of us exist for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is telling us here. Jesus in the beginning, Jesus in the end. Now what about Jesus in the middle? What about Jesus in the middle? He's the first cause and he's the final cause. But what does he have to do with the day-to-day? I mean, the moment-by-moment where the rubber meets the road, life stuff. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In Him all things hold together. You see, not only is He the first cause that began it, and not only is He the goal, the end, but He is the one that is enabling everything in the middle by His power. Now, that's a tough one to swallow, Because what that means is it's the power, if you 
follow that truth to the end, what that means is that the power, even of those who oppose him and are the perpetrators of atrocities, that they're doing that by the sustaining power of Jesus Christ, that he's the one that's keeping them alive and giving them a life in which they commit such acts. But here's the difference. Here's the wisdom with which to process that. We need to understand that Jesus is in the details, but is not in the doing. He is in the details as the one who sustains all things, but he is not in the doing. He doesn't will sin to happen. He's not the author of pain or the cause of your problems. But in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your problems, he's the one that's working in the details and will work all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. See, he's sovereign. He's working all the way through the middle not causing the sin, but even in the midst of it, in the face of it, he's working a good plan. Because by him all things exist. Here's the question with that. When you're in the valley, when you're in the pain, when you're in the difficulties, are you going to trust him with the details? Colossians 1.18 says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Let me try to hit that quickly. Three things there, head, body, church. Let's start from the end and work back, the church. Remember what the overall theme is here? Jesus and his preeminence, Jesus and his greatness. The church encompasses, and there's one church on the planet, really one church. The church is made up of all those who have put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We've got about close to 300 houses of worship in Anchorage that proclaim the name of Christ, that hold to the truth of the Word of God. They're all part of the one church in this city. You know, the church is not plan B. The church is not some knee-jerk reaction. When Jesus Christ saw how brutal the world became, he said, oh, my goodness, frantically, i got to do something about this. And so I'm going to cut my losses, and I'm going to make this new creation the church. So there's at least one little spot of hope on the planet. No, the church was his plan from the beginning. Again, that's why Jesus was slain from the creation of the world. He knew exactly what was going to happen with his creation. He had already determined the plan in which he would leave heaven, step down into the flesh of humanity, live within the parameters of the human condition as the full God, full man being so that he could go to the cross, take on himself all of humanity's sins, pay its 
debt and offer eternal life to those who would put their faith in him. That was his plan A. Now, think about how that shows the greatness, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Before he said, let there be light, he looked and saw darkness on the horizon. When he laid the earth's foundations, he knew which stones were going to be used to seal his own tomb. When he placed the ore in the soil, he knew that some of it would be fashioned into a Roman spike and driven through his wrist. He knew that. When he grew the first tree, he knew that the seed would one day be used to grow a tree on which he would hang. And out of that death and resurrection, he birthed a new creation called the church. It's the church that Christ chose for his bride. It's the church that kicks down hell's gates. It's the church that Christ is returning for. It's the church that Christ is praying for right now. It's the church that Christ, it's the church that heaven throws a party for. Here's the point. What does Jesus Christ think of the church? He loves the church. We should as well. We should as well. Jesus is working in the church. We should trust him to work in ours. Jesus Christ doesn't give up on the church. We shouldn't give up on the church. You know, I've met several people over the years, actually two or three of them in ministry, not lead pastors, but associate pastors, that just looking at the decadence of the world and the Apathy of the church, he said, no, the church is gone. It's, it's hopeless, and I'm just not worth giving my time to anymore. Resigned their position, kind of cloistered themselves in their own home just to teach their own uh, two or three kids and let the rest of the world go to hell. That's not God's plan. It's not God's plan. He loves the church and is not going to give up on the church. That verse also talked about the body. It described the church as the body, the body of Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. What's a, what's a body do? I mean, an endless amount of things, but think about how the body is your greatest communicator. I mean, you've heard that, right? So much of your communication is body language. It's what gives expression uh, to what you say. Your words can inspire, but you know what wins the day? Love wins the day. That's the difference between words and your body, your action. Jesus said, it's not the power of our words, it's our love that's going to determine the impact of our witness. So here's the point I'm getting at here with the church, the body. 
and how it shows the preeminence, the greatness of Jesus. I just want to read you this little few sentences I wrote here because I want to get them right. Jesus is the incomparably great one because he was able to take a radically diverse, extremely frail, self-centered, sin-bent, unforgiving, arrogant, ignorantly hopeless group of people and bring them together to form a new creation that would be an unstoppable force to advance his kingdom over the entire globe. To see the greatness of Jesus, look at his new creation, the church. He had nothing substantial to work with, and yet he did everything with it. His greatness continues to be revealed as he works through such imperfection and weakness to accomplish his world-transforming will. That proves the greatness of Jesus Christ because of what he has done in and is doing in the body, the church. also says that Jesus Christ is the head, the head of the body, the church. The word there is referring to Jesus being great leader. Great leader. You know what great leaders know? They know where they're going. Jesus Christ, did he know? Folks, before birth, he knew where he was going. Slain before the foundation of the world. At age 12, after a three-day kind of misplaced the Son of God event, his parents find him, and what did Jesus say? He said, I had to be right here where I'm at doing my Father's work. Jesus knew where he was going at 12. And Jesus knew where he was going at 30, and at 31, and at 32, and at 33. He kept telling his disciples and telling his disciples. You know what? The last statement of Jesus on the cross proves that Jesus knew where he was going. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is a great leader because he knew where he was going. Secondly, great leaders live their message. Did Jesus live his message? He didn't just speak the truth. Jesus is the way and the... Come on, church. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He lived every bit of his teaching in perfection. And great leaders love people. Jesus is the greatest demonstration of love the human race, God on the cross. Colossians 1.18b, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Firstborn from among the dead. You know what Paul is painting there? He's painting the picture of a conquering Savior right there. Because the great nemesis of humanity is death. And it was not until the life of Jesus Christ that the sting of death was conquered. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Oh my goodness, volumes could be preached. 
if I knew how to do it, volumes could be preached there because we're talking about the fullness of God, and that's an endless subject. And Jesus is the fullness of God. What can I say about Jesus being the fullness of God? I'll try to give you just a few thoughts. In Jesus, there is full sufficiency. Focus in on the word all. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All. It's a comprehensive word. It is a word that lacks nothing. Jesus, in his full sufficiency, lacks nothing, no thing, no lack. Where is there turmoil in your life? Where is there storm? Where, there's, where is there division? Where is there strife? Jesus is the one who lacks nothing. He's fully sufficient. And then secondly, focus in on the word fullness. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Full riches of God in Christ. Full riches of God in Christ. You know, that word fullness is a perfect complement to the word all as they're put together. All his fullness. Because the word all is a word that means nothing is lacking. The word fullness means everything is included. You see how complementary they are? Nothing lacking, everything included. That's Jesus Christ. Why? Because all the fullness of God dwells in Him. He's fully sufficient. And then there is abiding fullness in Jesus. It says, all the fullness of God does what? It dwells. It dwells. That word there means that it is never absent, that the fullness of God all of the fullness, the fullness that lacks nothing and that has everything, that dwells in Jesus. It stays in Jesus. It remains in Jesus. It will never be apart from Jesus. He will always have all the fullness of God. It's an abiding fullness. Blood of Christ will never lose its power. Truth of Christ will never lose its relevance. Love of Christ will never meet its conqueror. Forgiveness of Christ will never find a debt it can't pay. Why? Because all the fullness of God dwells in him. It remains there. You know what that means? That means it's always accessible. While you're here alive and breathing, it's accessible. Do you know Invitation of Christ is always come. Do you know that? Let me just read you a few. Matthew 4, 19. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Several people in our church got that confused this morning, and they are down trying to dip net reds. They forgot that men word there. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Come to me. Matthew 19, 14. Let the little children come to me. John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And then go right to the very end of the book, right at the closing statements, Revelation twenty two seventeen. Here's this final invitation on the last page of the Bible. Come, exclamation point. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. So that he lacks nothing, he has everything, and it's always accessible for you while you're alive and breathing here on planet Earth. That's all the time we're going to have this morning. But I want to just show you one last truth here because it's important that we take truth and apply it, right? The Bible was not meant to increase your knowledge. It was meant to change your life. I'm just going to read this really quick. The passage that we looked at is Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I want to show you the text that's before that and the text that's after that. A few verses. Paul tells us what he is praying for the church at Colossae. Verse 9, from the day that we have heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what he's praying. I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul wants the Colossae believers to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Why? Verse 10 so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Please Him in every way. He's praying that they would understand God's will so that through that understanding they would live the life that would bring glory to God. After the text that we read, verse 22, it's talking about how Jesus is reconciled those who have put their faith in Him. And why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. There's the purpose again. He wants you to be holy and blameless. He wants you to live a life here that pleases God. And how does that happen? Verse 28. Him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What Paul has in his mind is he wants maturity in the believers at Colossae. And so what does he do? He's praying that God would fill them with a knowledge of his will. And toward that end, what does he do? He proclaims Jesus Christ. Why? Because you want the knowledge of God. Look. To Jesus Christ, you see, right between the purpose statement that's above it and the purpose statement that's below it that are one and the same, he gives the key to getting it done and it's all centered in an 
accurate knowledge of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 15 to 20, he breaks into this doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ to teach us about who he is. Because if you would understand more and more in a growing measure who Jesus Christ is and that as a follower of his, you are in him, it'll make all the difference as you engage your world day to day so that you live in a manner that is worthy pleasing Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. That's the goal. That's the goal. You see, doctrine is the platform upon which lifestyle flows. No doctrine, no lifestyle. You understand the truth and it positions you then to live in the blessing of all the riches of Jesus Christ. But you have to know what those riches are. You have to understand that they're all in him. And if you go to him and you look to him and you continually push into him, then his riches become yours. Fleshed out day to day. That's... Paul's prayer for the church of Colossae. It's my prayer. It's our elders' prayer for the church right here. It's my prayer for my life and my wife and my kids. Let me just close with this statement. What's the big idea? Here's the big idea. Continually, regularly, daily, consistently, diligently look to the person of Jesus Christ. Walk with him. Follow him. Learn to hear his voice. Understand his heart. Model his life. You'll be a key through which the power of God will flow through you. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your son, your all-sufficient, preeminent, incomparable, undefeatable, conquering son. Thank you that your goal is to make us like him that we would attain to the full measure of the stature of Christ. Fill us with the knowledge of you through him toward that end. In his name I pray. Amen.